0: Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. At a quick glance, Mark Bagley's resume looks like many other detectives I've interviewed on the crime couch. The former Victoria Police Detective Sergeant spent his early years in uniform at Russell Street, the TOG and the Protective Security Group before finding his niche in criminal investigation. Mark worked in the rape, armed robbery, drug and the homicide squads. He was seconded to the Australian Crime Commission before leading special duties teams and regional response units. But this is where the similarity ends. After leaving the job in 2016, Mark put down his gun and handcuffs and picked up a paintbrush. Mark's now a renowned Impressionist painter, specialising in landscapes, seascapes, and street scenes in both oil and watercolour. Hi Mark, and welcome to The Crime Couch.
1: Thank you, Rochelle. Uh, very kind of you. Very kind words in the opening.
0: First things first, what led you to becoming a police officer?
1: Okay, well, I, look, I was, a bit of a, I was a bit of a dumbass at school, so um, you, you probably classed me as, a, as a, a, a lazy student. I was reasonably bright, um, but, but just lazy and, and easily led by others, so I didn't like school at all. I made a a decision early in my life about, I was about probably 15, that I wanted to join the police cadets. And everything I did, after I made the decision, everything I did was geared towards joining the police cadets. And the, the, the year I turned 16, I missed out on the intake by one month because of my birthday. And I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. So I said to my father, look, I'm done with school. You know, I was 16 years of age. I said, oh, I, I can't do another year. And he said, yeah, that's, that's all right. Well, you know, if you uh, want to leave school, that's fine. But you're not leaving school unless you got a trade. So I did a trade. But the, but the whole time I was doing the trade, I had in my mind that I was going to join the police force at some point once I'd finished the trade. And that's exactly what I did. I held that. Uh, it was really like a calling for me, I guess. I, I never lost the urge to do it from essentially 15 until I joined at 20
0: was it difficult mark to find your niche in the job and if so why
1: well it, look it was in a sense that i didn't have any family or i didn't i didn't have any anybody that i associated with that were in the police force or or had been in in policing so i went into policing not really knowing much at all about it now i grew up in I grew up in Dandenong, and you know, with a colourful group of mates that, you know, some went on to go to jail, some uh, one one ended up shot dead out of Keysborough. So I could have taken a completely different track, but I think that that urge to join join the police force uh, kept me sort of on the straight and narrow for that uh, time between 15 and 20. So, look, when I when I first Went in and went went to the academy. Everything was foreign. I didn't, you know, I'd never marched before. I'd never, I'd never really had the discipline that you sort of pitch in the face as soon as you walk into that academy. And for the first couple of years in the job, yeah, it did. It did take me a while to find that niche. I I tried different things. You know, I figured, well, I'm in this job. In this job now, I want to do as much as I can uh, in a short space of time and get a a real feel for the job and an understanding of what it's all about so hence i tried these different di- different areas uh i went to the tog i did a short stint there and uh that wasn't for me at all but what it did what that did do for me was i was at st kilda and we worked a lot of ships one up back then uh, as a traffic car so for me it got me out and about you know i didn't have to do uh, some of the more mundane things that you do at force reserve and russell street you know, cleaning up drunks and those sorts of things. Um, I was mobile. I was out and about. I was pulling cars over. I was checking people, and so that's what it did for me. But the actual job itself and the charter was no good for me. I, I wasn't interested in writing tickets out for motorists or putting cars off the road. You know, as far as cars are concerned, I know where the petrol goes in, and that's all I want to know. I don't know anything else about them. Or I don't want to know anything about them. So I did a short stint there. And that wasn't for me. I went to the protective security group and did some did some things there. That's where my my whole life and the job changed, because the latter part of my my stay there, I was seconded down to St Kilda when an annex was formed in Fitzroy Street, St Kilda. At the time, St Kilda was out of control. The local coppers were doing a really good job down at St Kilda, but they were swamped. So uh, Fitzroy Street was mad and they, the, the powers of be decided to set up an annex down in, in, uh, Fitzroy, in Fitzroy Street and uh, man it 24-7, mostly foot patrols, mostly twilight shifts, night shifts in plain clothes and uniform. And I did that for about nine months and I loved every second of it. Uh, that's where I got a real taste for criminal work, criminal invest- investigative type work. Locking up crooks and and you know it was a it was a full on gig, but that really changed the course of you know my career. Then I, I realised then well this is what I want to do. So as soon as that stint happened at the annex, I transferred to St Kilda uniform proper, and um, and on I went from there down the down the criminal field. <laughs>
0: Mark, did you always want to be a detective?
1: Look, to be honest, no. When I first joined the job, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I hadn't been really, thinking back on it, I hadn't really been exposed to detectives and what they did. There might have been a couple of sessions in the academy where maybe one, I can't even remember, but maybe one came out and talked to us about what they did. So the answer to the question is no, and it wasn't until you know probably those that annex period there and then and then transferring to St Kilda police station proper when i when i got to really develop good relationships with the with the St Kilda CI fellas you know working with them and learning off them that's when the decision was was made right oh, this is this is where i'm going this is what i'm going to do and i'm going to work really hard to get there now now St Kilda at the time we're talking in the mid 80s St Kilda at the time I won't say I won't say all. a significant proportion of the members at St Kilda worked there because they wanted to go to the CI. That that was that was the generality. So, what that did was created such a such a competitive environment. So, everybody was competing for figures. Ev- everybody was you know just wanting to get out and lock up crooks. You know, I mean, you had to if you say you work in the div van, you'd get in you know an hour earlier. You get a bit of paperwork done. You'd be Sort of standing there waiting, with your bags packed for the the previous shift van to arrive back at the station, so you could jump straight into it and get out. You do your attend your jobs and do what you had to do, but in amongst all that, you were on the lookout for 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 crooks and and arrests and briefs. But back then, you had to you know you had to produce six months worth of figures at a at a CI selection panel. Now, the guys are generally sitting on that panel, the the old detective supers and um, you couldn't pull the wall over their eyes. They knew you are either a worker or you weren't a worker and you, you, you couldn't go before those panels without six months of really good figures. So, you know, the, the whole place was, was competitive like that. And I, and I remember, you know, working a lot, of, a lot of hours in my own time, you know, because I didn't want to take up time, where you could be catching crooks, I didn't want to take up time doing paperwork. So you come in on your days off or, you know, on your holidays and you get all that administrative paperwork, shit done in your own time. And the, the other time would be for you know, for catching crooks. So while I, was, while I was sort of involved in all that, my decision then to, to become a detective was cemented. I didn't want to do anything else. There was nothing else that I wanted to do. I had a, I had a really, going back sort of slightly, I had, I, I thought I might have been interested in going to the Special Operations Group actually. And I, I just, I liked, I liked the work they did. I wasn't fit enough. I wasn't committed to the fitness. I was basically hopeless when it came to uh, to to fitness. and I remember doing a I went out for a run with one of my one of my sergeants at the time who was a great deal older than me, and we went for a bit of a run and he just ran rings off me and when we got back from this run, you know it was about that point that I said to myself, now nah, look, I think I'll steer away from that. I think I think I'll head down the road of detective because you know they get to. Well, they don't have to run anywhere. Most of the running's already, you know, it's already taken care of. And you know, you just need to learn how to sit down and, you know, be able to drink a beer and, you know, have a, you know, have a good time in the job. So that's that was cemented for me.
0: What was the most satisfying job for you, and why?
1: Well, look, there's there's been a lot. There's been a lot of jobs. You know, when you when you sort of talk about thirty five years of most of it doing investigative. Work. There's lots and lots of jobs. A lot of fleeting. There's a lot of, you know, quick, satisfying results. But going going back early, going back early days, I was at Malvern CI, and, and, and a really satisfying job for me was there was a, um, a particularly nasty aggravated burglary one night on a family in East Mulvane who were a fairly well-to-do family, in a well-to-do street in a nice big house. A couple that lived there had a daughter who daughter who was a, a media personality and these uh, three crooks from the western suburbs one night came across to came across to Melvin. the first thing they did was they picked a flat in dandenong road carnegie at random purely because the lights were on they went to the flat they smashed their way into the flat and inside there was a young couple who just moved in together they were sort of boyfriend girlfriend this is this was their first uh, first place, they were living together and and they were in the flat, they in absolute terror flew out the back door, over onto the train lines and hid there, both stark naked. And these three villains helped themselves to a heap of property inside this particular flat and then took off and then they then went to this place in Malvern as a, as the second address. When they smashed their way in through the doors there, they the, the couple there were in bed one of them grabbed a uh, bottle, smashed it, and stabbed the woman in the face with it. And another crook uh, stabbed the fella in the face with a screwdriver. They ransacked the, they ransacked the place. Now, the, the girl who was, or the lady who was the, um, uh, in the media at the time, was there. Uh, she was asleep in, in her room. They left her alone. After doing all this stabbing and gathering of property, they took off. I mean, it happens every day now. It's an everyday event now, these aggravated home invasion burglaries. But back back then, they were, they were reasonably rare. You, you get the aggravated burglary where the crooks know each, each other, and it's over a drug debt or it's over some payback or whatever. But just to pick out families at random like this was reasonably rare. Anyway, but myself and a, another colleague, the Sergeant at Malvin at the time, we went after these three with absolute gusto. By the end of the day, we had identified and arrested one who dobbed his mate in, and we'd arrested the second one. And the third one, who was the one that did the stabbings, was, yeah, it was just a real piece of work. The next morning, we found out where he was, and we went and scooped him up. And when we, when we got him back to the, at the arrest scene, he stacked on the turn. There was fisty cuffs, and there was all sorts of stuff going on. But we managed to get him back to the uh, station, and I, and I rang the victim, the fella. And he said to me, I said, look, we've got the third fella. And he goes, do you mind if I come down there and you can just give me five minutes with him in the interview room? And I said, I'd love to, mate. I said, I'd, I'd, love, to, I'd love to do that. But, you know, I've sworn an oath. So, you know, I said, I understand, I understand where you come from. But I said, if you come to court in the morning, we've had to fight this fella during his arrest. And he looks like the frigging elephant man. So if you come to court in the morning, You'll see what he looks like now, and I think you'll get some degree of satisfaction just in just in seeing him as he is now in the court. And he goes, "I oh, well, thanks, you know, thanks very much." So he came to court the next day, and there was old mate sitting in the dock there, looking like the elephant man, and and I think he was reasonably reasonably happy with that. But you know, I I did I fell for him. You know, it was the, probably the first time where you know it's a good job of a good man because. I would have loved to have let him in that room for five minutes, you know, this, this bloke had stabbed his wife in the face with a bottle. So anyway, so as far as satisfying jobs go, I reckon that, that was one of the more satisfying ones because that, that family became good friends of ours and for, for years and years and years, I haven't, seen, I haven't seen him now for a couple of years, but um, we, we maintained friendships, really close friendships with that family for years afterwards. And it was just, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a, one of those sort of rare sort of cases and we, we got onto it and we, we got a really good, really good result. You know, they were what, imprisoned and everything else, but it was just a, it was a satisfying thing.
0: Mark, you spent some time in the armed robbery squad. It sounds like a sentence, I don't mean it to be. Describe those days, because they were pretty heady days in the armed robbery squad. Is, is that accurate? Oh,
1: no, look, we, you know, we all sort of sat there looking goofy with our glasses on, doing paperwork most of the days. No, look, it, it was, it was, it was a heady squad. It was, I mean, a lot's been written about the armed robbery squad, good and bad. But what I can say is I've never worked with a more, with a, with a bunch of detectives that are so focused on, on the work that, that we were doing at the time. Fearless, totally fearless. And you have to be working in those sorts of environments, fiercely loyal to the to your, to your counterparts. You know, when I, when I was there, we sort of we were coming out of a period of allowing armed robberies to take place before arrests were taking place. The, the 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 risks associated with that were there wasn't the emphasis placed back in those days as what there is today. So, so in other words, I mean, some people, yeah, I think we, you know, we're just cowboys and stuff, but. When the when the job was on, the job was on, and we you know chased these little bandits around, and it was it was a bit of a game, you know, and, and the, these armed robbers knew it was a bit of a game. That g- generally the same old names kept coming up, you know, that by virtue of the fact that we were you know investigating armed robbers that were committing only the more serious armed robberies, you know, when we talk about banks and payrolls and 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 those types of things and series, and you know, it, it was a bit of, it was a bit of cat and mouse. But I loved it, not just the work, I loved the social aspect of it. It was an all-consuming squad, and that's probably the best way to put it, it was all-consuming. It cost a lot of people their marriages, (laughs) you know, and I can say that, you know, because it was true. You know, your wife had to be someone really special, to be putting up with the hours that you worked, the socialising that you did, the…
0: Girlfriends you sometimes had. Well, I never
1: saw that, Rochelle, but you know, know, I'm sure it happened. I never actually physically saw that, but when the job was on, the job was on, you know, and and the banter, the practical joking that went on around the office, there was all those all those sort of stress relief things that happened. But when some, when a job happened, everyone was on, and it worked like clockwork. As far as loyalties go, oh, it was one of the one of the uh, the most fiercely loyal squads I've worked at.
0: A drug squad job in Sunshine particularly has stayed with you because you worked in the drug squad. It involved a crook who flushed his heroin down the toilet. What actually happened?
1: We're, we're moving forward here. It wasn't a drug squad. That wasn't a drug squad job. It was. Uh, I was a detective sergeant at Sunshine CI, and uh, we, we just we, we get sick sick and tired of you know crooks getting away with drug dealing because they flush product down the toilet and you end up with no product, and you know it becomes difficult to prove trafficking and all these other things. Anyway, so so this this uh, particular job was the information came to us that this fellow was recompressing heroin or heroin on behalf of a syndicate in his unit in St Albans and we just went through the motions and got the search warrant and we went to his address one afternoon and me and the crew. As we were sort of getting ourselves ready to go in one of the fellows on my crew around the back said oh he's I can see him he's off to the toilet you know he's in, he's in the toilet now it's flushing anyway so it was all Get in as quickly as you can. So he got in there and of course, you know, he flushed whatever he flushed down the toilet. And he was a real smug crook, you know, just just sort of looking at us like, well, you've got nothing now, you know. So we don't normally do it. And it was the first time I'd actually done this. uh, But I thought, no, bugger it, you know, he's going to learn a lesson." this boy out of this. So the first thing we did was got a plumber in. We asked the plumber to remove both toilets to see if it had lodged up around the SBN or whatever. So we, we got him to remove both toilets out of this. He goes, no, it's not there. So anyway, the next port of call was ringing, I think it was uh, the sh- uh, the council after hours water people, and we got them out with a truck. And I set this crook in front of his his window, which faces the backyard. And I said, I want you to sit there and watch this. Next minute, the, the worm comes out. And the the fellow from the council said, "Look, you know, we're gonna have to dig up a bit of the backyard." I said, "Oh, just do, what like. do, do whatever. We've got a search warrant, so if you need to dig it up, dig it up. I want that worm put down there." So, anyway, the worm, camera worm, went down there. Ugh, oh, you know, he said, "I think," he said, "I think I can see it. It's a fair way down, and there's another portion, another arm that goes off to the right-hand side." And yeah, I so "What do we need now?" So, cut a long story short. Next minute, into the driveway, pulls the fire. Services unit, the rescue unit, and they've got all this UVD equipment, right? So the crook's sitting there, thinking to himself, "What the hell, you know?" And the fire people get out, and they get their equipment out, and they did some stuff with their equipment, a bit more digging. Sewage pipes broke, and the joint was just an absolute mess. And we found the heroin. The heroin had gone into that right. Angle and it had gone down into a pit into the next door neighbour's house, and the guy said to me, "Oh, what, what do you want us to do?" I said, "No, just leave it now. We're not going into the neighbour's house." They all packed up and left, and I said to this fellow, "I said, look, this is what happens when you flush product down the toilet." I said, "Your mates obviously told you to do that when the when the coppers come in, flush, you know." I said, "Well, you can tell those mates that you've now got two fresco toilets." And anyway, so you know, he had this, yeah, uh, this. Uh, look on his face anyway, I said, look, you know, we've all had a long day here, so here's my name, I'll see you Monday morning, come in Monday morning, we'll do an interview. So anyway, he comes in on Monday morning, I said, oh, how'd, how'd you go the weekend, mate, uh, you know? He goes, well, not real good. He said, uh, you know, I had to use the uh, toilets at the uh, service station, local service station. I said, oh well, that, that'll learn you next time don't flush it down the
0: toilet. How does a hard bitten detective who's done a lot of time in the crime squads become a painter?
1: okay well it's a bit of a a bit of serendipity now I, I wasn't really that I can recall artistic as a kid I don't remember being artistic I don't remember spending a lot of time drawing or I certainly didn't paint um, i was a sa- I was a uniform sergeant colleague when I was doing the special duties there It was busy it was long hours and and I felt like, I wasn't burning out, but I felt like I needed to do something else. Well, I didn't know what. One morning, I literally woke up wanting to paint something. Now, I don't know what had subconsciously triggered that. Something had, I don't know what. So I, I, I got out of bed and I ended up in an art supply shop local and I had no idea what I was buying, absolutely none. I, I, I just said to the girl behind the counter, look, you know, I want to paint something. What do you got? So of course she she's done the right thing by the company and sold me the most expensive stuff in the place, which were which were oils and you know. Um, so I bought a set of oil paints and a few brushes and I think I bought a, cap, a small canvas board, and I took it home. I didn't know where to start. I didn't really. There was no YouTube or any sort of computer thing you could look at to learn. I essentially got these paints out, and I did a port. I did a portrait of. My son, who was, he was a toddler uh, in this particular photo, and I, I did his portrait over probably a month, just a bit here and a bit there. But, but what I found was where, when I was actually painting, I, I wasn't focused, I, I, that's all I was focused on, nothing else. I wasn't thinking about policing. I wasn't thinking about anything else other than this particular painting. So I thought, geez, that's all right. And I, and I could paint for like you know, an hour or, or an hour and a half and, and be totally lost in it. So I really, I really enjoyed it. So that started, that started this art thing. Although I wasn't, I wasn't serious at all about it. I dabbled here and there. I would, you know, start. I'd start a bit of a painting, and then while I was on holidays, and then the during the holidays, put it away, and I wouldn't see it again for twelve months. And i would take it out, and now nah, it's going to throw it out. So it was just a dab, just a big dabbling exercise. Fast forward, le- leading leading up to sort of re- retirement from the force, um, I knew that um, that's what I was going to do. I um, had made a, a decision that when I when I retire, I'm not sitting around, or um, you know, I'm not I'm not the sort of I'm not a TV person. I'm not not the sort of person that can sit around and watch TV or do a bit of gardening. Um, I was full on in the job, you know. In every aspect, I was full on. I had to be the same after the event. You know, I couldn't just stop. So anyway, so I I took up, when I retired, I took up painting with gusto. Went on a, a real learning expedition quickly. So essentially, the day after I retired, I started a studio. There was no downtime. There was no time in between. And I treated it like... I treated it like a second job. So I would go in at a certain time in the morning into where I was painting at the time in the garage. I've got a studio now, but in the garage I was painting. And I'd paint there, and I'd come out at lunchtime, I'd get some lunch, and then I'd go back in there and paint in the afternoon. And that was every day, that was my structure every day. I went on this, I was sponging up everything I could about painting, so I was, I was looking at the internet, I was attending workshops all over the country, um, I, I, attended, I attended a few, initial, initially attended a, a couple of workshops where I got nothing out of them and I thought, no, I'm not doing that anymore. So I picked workshops with with a renowned Australian landscape painter. His name's John Wilson. He's up at Katoomba in the Blue Mountains. And I signed up for a week-long workshop with him and I knew it was gonna be difficult because he's uh, an intermediate sort of teacher. But I, And I went up there and I did the week with him and I had a headache every night. My head was panning like a drum. There was so much, because there was so much involved in the workshop. And I got so much out of it. So after that first week, I saw, I then saw my painting, my landscape painting, lift up a couple of notches quickly. So there were certain aspects, I'm not going to bore you with the details, certain aspects of painting technicalities, which he taught me in that week, which probably would have taken me six months if I'd have been researching it myself.
0: Tell me, Mark, what's been the response to mates in the job and even former colleagues? Be honest.
1: Well, you know, look, you you know, there's a whole range of things. Uh, I've had a lot of support. I've had a lot of disbelief, a lot of scoffing, a lot of uh, what? Because, you know, in the job I was reasonably private. You know, I I didn't give much away when I was in the job. I never used to sit down and talk about family or what I was, you know, what I was doing with the family very often, you know. So the the guys that were, I was close to that I worked with had no idea, had literally no idea. So when I, when I came out with this, I think, you know, there would have been a few of them that thought, you know, I maybe need to be certified perhaps, you know, I need, need to have a, a short stint in uh, rehab. But look, as as time as time has gone on, you know, it's become, well, it's certainly become more, more accepting. I've got, a lot, I've got a lot of support amongst my and, and and family and uh, because see art was one of those things in the police force that was never it, it's it's not a part of a police officer's persona in fact I, I you know I reckon he, in the earlier days in the job if I'd have mentioned I loved art I think that again I would probably would have been certified things are changing now obviously but now I've got look I've got a lot of support and I and I, I do a lot of I post a lot of stuff on and I have to on social media. It's the only way. It's the way of the world now. Social media isn't. You can't get you can't get away with not doing it. So a lot of my a lot of my friends on social media get to see a lot of my work now. Yeah, look. Some just don't believe it. You know, some are wrapped. Some are very supportive. Some are probably still seated now, just trying to get their heads around it. But I, look, I've got to say, I I always. I always said to myself in the job. Always said to myself that once I leave the job, I'm not doing anything enforcement related. I had no interest in being a private investigator.
0: Because a lot of guys do, they go, or and women too, they go into security. And before you know it, they're kind of doing very similar work to what they are used to doing.
1: Yeah, look, that's exactly right, and and I and I get it. That's their skill, that's their skill base. After a lot of years in the job, you know, if they're skilled investigators, that's their line of work. And their identity. And their identity, yes, and their identity. But I I was 100%, I was not going to do it. I was not interested.
0: Mark, tell me, how does your background, if indeed it does, in the job influence your work?
1: That's a good question. It doesn't really. I mean, look, if, if if it did, I'd be painting, you know, a lot darker scenes now than what I actually paint. Like I'm a I'm yeah. impressionist landscape painter, so I, I love the landscape and you know, color and light and all those other things. Um, you know, I, I could I could quite easily, I guess, uh, if I was going to let previous occupation influence me, be painting dark, moody sort of scenes. You know, because that. Let's face it, essentially, that's what you, you're dealing most of the time. So it hasn't really influenced my painting as such, but what it has influenced is my, my ability to speak to people. And, you know, I, I don't get, you know, intimidated by people, you know, outside of the force. And I think this is indicative of a lot of, a lot of coppers. They don't realise at the time, but once, you, once, once you're out, the, the job does that for you. It develops those skills to a point where you're not intimidated by speaking to people.
0: Does your painting help with your mental health? Because often I've noticed with people that leave the job, there's a lot of phantoms and a lot of things they've got to deal with, and a lot of ghosts they've got to put to rest. So you talked about the mindfulness that you have when you paint. Does that help you?
1: I don't. I don't have any mental illness, and I and I say that you know I, I really sympathise and empathise with the ones that do come out broken of the force broken. I didn't. I, I didn't come out of the force broken, and you know I can say that it hasn't hit me yet. Hopefully, it doesn't. But but I don't carry. I, I don't carry things from the job. You know. I think I. You know. I, I was able to deal with those things reasonably well. You know. Look. I, when I paint now, everything. I everything I do now. Is, is art related, not job related. I don't think about the police force anymore. My wife's still in, and I, I hear bibs and bobs from her occasionally about things, but you know, I, I don't think about the job anymore. Everything for me is art related, and it's all happy.
0: What's your preference, oils or watercolour?
1: Both. I, I started off uh, predominantly as an oil painter, which I, I still, you know, I, it's, it is my preference, oil. Um, I do a lot of plein air work, which is out in the field. So I, I, I paint a lot outdoors. And more and more outdoors, as opposed to studio work, prefer to be out. So I'll often, you know, take myself away up the bush or uh, you know, up on, the, up on either the Murray or the Camp Aspe River or the King River or somewhere for a few days and just paint up there for a few days. And, you know, I really enjoy that. So oil's good for that. Watercolour I got into about uh, three years ago and I did it because I wanted something to do in between oil layers if i was doing a painting so you have to wait for an oil layer to dry and rather than start another oil painting i just started dabbling around with watercolors and i got hooked on it because it's such an unforgiving and challenging medium it really is it's so unforgiving so and i like the challenge of that so i started dabbling with that now i'm full on with watercolor and look even now i've got, I've got a lot to you know i've got a lot to learn about watercolor but you know, I can do five watercolors, and there'll only be one decent one in the five, and the other four will go in the bin. That's just the nature of the of the medium. With oil, you can just paint over it, or you can scrape it off and start again. Or with watercolor, you can't. Once the once it's down, you're stuck with it. So I like that aspect. I like that challenging aspect. So to answer your question, I like both. I, I like both mediums equally. Now, yeah?
0: finally, Mark, what are your future plans with your artwork?
1: I don't know. I'm currently. Uh, on the council uh, here at the Victorian Artists Society. So I've, I've been a member here for about four years now and I've been a, on council here for about a year and I've just been appointed onto the executive committee here. So that's that's all pointing towards happiness. I really enjoy being here and amongst artists and exhibiting, which I do a lot of here. I've got a solo art exhibition here at the Victorian Artists Society, 430 Albert Street, East Melbourne which kicks off on the 13th of October, uh, running for two weeks. I've just had an an exhibition down in Anglesey for a couple of weeks down there with another colleague from here, uh, which went well. So, look, I don't really know. I'm anticipating I'll stay on council here for as long as my mind lets me. And as far as where the art goes, I think I'll do it in stages. Next year, you know, I'll probably probably work to an exhibition, one exhibition only next year. I I generally put something in at camboil every year. So I'll look at, Maybe getting some something done for Camberwell. It, it It's a constant educational journey for me as well, so I keep learning. I, you know, I'll keep doing workshops. I'll keep engaging with the mentors I've got here. You know, the, these guys. Uh, the, these guys are doings of the society here. That, you know, been here for 40 years or more. So I, you know, I learn from them, and, and that's and that's the other the aspect of policing, I guess, and that that ability to communicate is that I'm not frightened about going to these fellows and engaging me in conversation and learning from them. Others might be a little bit funny about that. Um, I'm not. So I've made some really good friends here, made some really good friends and colleagues here. So look, all I know is I'm I'm now an artist. I'm a former police member, but I'm now an artist. And everything I do now is geared around art.
0: It's been an absolute delight sitting with you, Mark, on the crime couch. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Rochelle. Um, Yeah, no, it's been a, a real pleasure. Thanks.
0: Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Catch.